This message by Sam Shin, entitled "Stuck Together as Gospel Communities," was recorded at Wall Spring Church on September 29, 2019. Text for this message: Acts chapter two, verses 42 to 47. We are in Acts chapter two, verses 42 to 47, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So this is the last week before we go into First John next week and start a new series on First John. But this is the last week reflecting on our life and journey together as a church, what it means to really be together. And last week we talked about what it meant to be stuck together as members and. This week we'll focus a little bit on gospel communities, or gospel community. What it means to be stuck together as a gospel community. For us, being stuck together as members has certain practical outworkings. Discipleship groups are one of them. That's the way that we practice how to live life together. And secondly, at Wellspring, it's through gospel communities. And so we wanted to talk a little bit again about. What it means to be a gospel community, specifically from a passage that we have looked at before, but we'll take just a different nuances from the same text in Acts chapter two, verses forty-two to forty-seven. And from it, we're going to examine two ways in which、um, how we're stuck together. First is we are stuck together by being cut together. That's odd, but you know, hopefully you'll understand. We're stuck together by by, by being cut together. And then, secondly, we're we're stuck together through gospel community. So, first, looking at what it means to be stuck together by being cut together, and from here, I want to look at chapter two of Acts, verses thirty-two to thirty-eight. And this is Peter's grand sermon following the work of the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost upon the church, and at that time, a hundred and twenty people. There, he preaches essentially a gospel message. And in it, in verses thirty-two to thirty-eight, we read, "This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this, and that you yourselves are seeing and hearing." Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, "Brothers, what shall we do?" And Peter said to them, "Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit." This passage, this sermon by Peter, it's really the first sermon of the New Testament church of the church period, and in it he starts with the gospel message, all that Christ had done, what he had accomplished. Through his work, and the response of the people who hear it is they are cut to the heart, and that cutting of the heart is the premise upon which any type of community, biblical 
stuck-together community can actually be true, genuine, and exist. It's that heart that is cut together that is humbled, transformed, changed, softened, opened by the gospel. It's that heart that exhibits grace to those who fail, to the weak, to the brokenhearted, to the sinner. And it's that starting point that we are gathering together as a church, as a church body, and then within that church body. I don't know if any of you have ever actually physically been cut. Um, it's obviously painful. That's it's very logical. It makes sense. Um, there are people who have had heart surgery, and heart surgery requires a cut. That pain when you're under isn't so terrible, but afterward, the pain is bad. It's, it's difficult. Uh, but that pain, that cut, is meant to save your life. And so afterward, when you're rehabbing, every time you feel that pain, you remember you were cut. And then when you remember that you were cut, you remember why you were cut. What is the reason for that cut? The cut forces you to remember that you needed surgery to save your life. And so by doing, having the surgery, your life is now changed. It's transformed. And so if we forget that, we forget all the blessings and the grace and mercy of this life-saving act. It is why as Christians and truly as a community of believers, to have actually true biblical stuck together community, we always have to go back to the fact that I have been cut, that my heart had to be transformed, changed. We need to always remember though that it wasn't actually me who was cut. Jesus was cut for me. I was the cause of Jesus' pain. I was the cause of Jesus' suffering. And if I forget that or press that, push that aside, and the moment that I believe that actually, no, I'm, I'm actually pretty good. My sins are not as bad as that person's sins over there. My sins are, as Jerry Bridges describes in his book, respectable. And I'm, I'm very concerned when we have this dual classification of sins. There are the respectable sins, the ones that are, oh, anger. We're all angry or jealousy. We're all envious or jealous. Um, where maybe we have a, a lustful thought in moment. We all face that every once in a while. So there's that class. But I'm not that type of sinner, the, the murderer, the adulterer, you know, the, the person who just does horrific, heinous sins. Those are the people that Jesus really died for, not for someone like me. When that happens, what happens is that we start having a moral standard that slowly seeps into our system and we start thinking that actually, I don't need to be cut. And maybe Jesus didn't really need to die on a cross because I'm not that bad at all. He needed to die for only those people, but not for me. I'm actually okay. When that happens, we really have to wonder if we understand who Jesus is. Do I actually believe him? Do I trust him? This idea of remembering that I am the cause, I needed to be transformed in my heart, but Jesus was cut 
broken on a cross, crucified, so that I could be transformed. This has to be central to our every Sunday gathering, to every conversation that we have, to every action, our members' vision meetings, all conflicts. Without remembering this, we will forget him. We will forget the change. And let me say this, we cannot have true biblical gospel community. We won't be stuck together. We can have community, but not transformational community. And I'm saying that there is a tremendous difference between the two. Transformational, biblical, gospel, stuck together, never giving up community. The one that you actually really want to be a part of, that we were actually created for. You can't have that until you realize that you are the cause. You and me are the cause of why Jesus had to go to that cross. And there is no sin too small or too great. If morality is the basis upon which we determine sin, then we don't understand sin. In actuality, it's a disobedience, a rejection of God. And that's why in Jesus, uh, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus makes so clear to us that if you are angry, you are committing murder, and you are in danger of the fires of hell. What a strong statement. If you have a lustful thought, you're committing adultery. I don't think Jesus is exaggerating there. His whole point is that heart is the exact same heart as the person who actually enacts it. Before God, it's the same thing. There's still that same level of disobedience. We might say, no, there's a difference. But you cannot read Matthew 5 and hear what Jesus says and simply say, no, actually, I can think that and it's not the same thing. Then we're really discounting what Jesus says there. Because the more you understand that to be true, and then when we gather together and you see broken people, you actually can have compassion and mercy and kindness and grace. That's what the world cannot see nor understand, especially a world like today where one mistake and you are cut off. We cannot be stuck together without being cut together. It has to be at the core of why we are together. Otherwise, we are a really nice religious club Nice. That's a really apt word to describe us. Nice. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be nice. I don't want to gather just to be nice. Because there are a lot of places you can go to meet nice people. I want to be with people who are transformed, who are changed. Also, we are stuck together through gospel community. When we know we're cut together through Jesus' work on the cross, we gain true, lasting community. And that community is founded, rooted on the eternal community of Father, Son, Spirit. That's what we reflect together when we are stuck together through the gospel. We're there because Father, Son, Spirit, before the foundations of the world, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, he called us. He predestined us. He adopted us as his own. And that was a plan of Father, Son, Spirit. It's stuck together community is an outflow of being in Christ together. 
And whether you realize it or not, this is what we were made for. And this is what we're always searching for. People long to belong. It is in the core of our being. We've been made this way. And we are always searching for that belonging. But we will never find it in another person. Not in a boyfriend or a fiancé or a spouse, a parent, a child. We will not find it in our career or in the, the many letters be after our name, the PhDs and all the others that go after it. You will not find it in social clubs and networks. And let me say this. You will not find it in a church. And that just seems odd. For me to say that, you'll not find community in a church. Meaning, we think that community is based on the fact that we're gathering each Sunday and doing certain things together that speak about Jesus. And that's automatically what leads to community. But that might have some level of connectionalism but it's not this stuck-together, biblical, gospel-saturated community. Trying to find community without Jesus at a church is like moving to California. Let's say you're driving across from Nevada, coming across the border, and you see the Welcome to California sign. You get to that sign, and you decide to stay right there and live right at that sign because you say, I am in California. And then others join you, and they're all gathering around. They're living at that sign, saying, we're here, we're in California. And that's ludicrous. We do not find community in a church. This is why so many people get discouraged when they go to church. They take part in certain programs or get their kids, and they say, oh, we really like the children's program. Or, I really like this or that. And then you stay long enough, and you think, I'm not finding community. I'm not, I'm not belonging. It, there are many reasons why. But foundationally, there is a problem. And the problem is that you will never find it just simply by a program or hanging out with people or because everybody goes skiing together, that's community. It just doesn't work that way. The church, it is a life-giving community in Christ. We are a signpost. We have to be that all the time. That's why Jesus truly has to be the center of everything we do. And it has to be infused also in how we respond to others, both when they're well and when they're not well. And so we, we point to Jesus over and over again. For some, pointing to Jesus is exactly what they do not want to hear. I always think, you know, we're in good company when... Sometimes people turn away from us because we're talking about Jesus too much. Because I always think, well, Jesus in John chapter 6, he was preaching, talking about his work coming, and it says, many disciples left him. Boy, if Jesus can lose disciples, who are we to say that, well, we can't lose disciples? We are pointing to Jesus. It's who we are. This is what our community has to be about all the time. And we can never be afraid to say that we're not about vacationing together or always going out to lunch together, hang out together. We are about Jesus. 
that matters more than anything else. And if we don't have that, we can never have stuck together communion. So, when we look at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, you have to understand that part is so foundational to all of these other things. Because the outflow of being stuck together in Christ by being cut together happens as a result of this. Without the first part, we can come up with a plan to do all these other things, and it'll just be another program. Another program that does nothing. Sounds good. Seems like a community, but it won't last. That type of community never lasts. It can last for maybe one year, five years, ten years, maybe thirty years. But eventually it will die out. Eventually you will fade away. Because the common ground changes. If you meet and if you're connected to certain people just because your kids are playing together, because they're all a certain age, and you have play dates and all these things, great. But that's not stuck-together community. Actually, you might find more stuck-together community with spending more time with people who are very different from you, different life stage, someone who's a senior, someone who has older children. And when you're working out, oh, my kids need to go to sleep because they're two years old and they need their nap time. And someone says, oh, my kids are in college and they, they, I need to do this. And oh, I'm, I'm a single person and I have more freedom and more time to do certain things. And you're trying to match it all out. And when you're trying to figure all that out and how it all works together and how you're going to be together, suddenly you realize what the bond is not your common interest. Your bond is has to be only one person, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And when that is the case, you will work it out. And when you work it out, and when you power through, and you persevere, and you persist, and you not give up, that's by nature stuck together community. But when you're only spending time with people who are exactly like you, who are in the same life stage, have the same interests, same personality types, well, guess what happens? As they get older, your whole community and your, your conversation is all about, oh, my kids are doing this, and what's your kid's? And suddenly, you know how this works. If your relationship is based solely on common interests, when you suddenly want to start mentioning Jesus, it becomes awkward. Because why are you bringing him into this story here? I thought we were, you know, everything was great. We're talking about vacation and you want to actually have a worship Jesus? I'm talking about two Christians who go to the same church. You ever been in a relationship like that? We're talking about Jesus with other people in the church on vacation together, and suddenly he becomes this really odd thing? Just mention the name of Jesus to somebody. I was reading a book last night about this woman who came to know the Lord at Oxford University. And it's a, it's a biography, and she's, she's a great writer. And she was talking about how all these different fellow Oxford students had led her to the Lord, right? And she, she's writing how... They just would mention the name Jesus. Like they were talking about how just saying, if you really want to mess up a conversation, just say the name Jesus. No matter where you are, at work, at the restaurant, don't worry about anything. Just say Jesus. Not as a curse word, but just say Jesus with somebody. And suddenly there's this, you can say Muhammad, you could say witches and Wiccan. You can talk about Ouija boards. You can talk about anything, but don't say Jesus. 
The scary part is that we, we have a hard time seeing Jesus with people inside the church. Because we have formed our communities so easily based on, because my kids are in kindergarten together. There is something amiss about that. My friends, let me tell you this. That community will not last. No matter how great your small group is, your discipleship group, if your group is all about, we really love each other, we like hanging out, we are, our families are all together, but you don't ever want to, you don't ever want to reach other people, reach the lost, you don't want to talk about Jesus, that will not last. Or if it does last, that is not biblical gospel community. What is this biblical gospel community? It is remembering we are cut together. And when that happens, here's the outflow. First is, they meet together. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. And that word devoted is really critical because it's, it's the verb that sort of carries itself along. It's, it's a word of persistence. Never giving up. It's hard, but do not give up. It's being in the habit of this might sound logical, but you can't build community without actually meeting together. I mean, it makes sense, right? It's not, it's not rocket science there. And there are two sides to this type of community of meeting together. First is that the individual needs to say, I'm not gonna give up meeting together. I'm gonna press forward. And the second is whether it's the church or different groups saying, I'm not gonna let you give up from meeting with me. And it's, it's this combination and it's a, it's a tricky dance. You know, you're always saying, I don't want to make the person feel bad. So if I ask them, Hey, what's going on? Why weren't you there on Sunday? Or we have a discipleship group or a gospel community and I, we missed you. It's very interesting. There's on the one side, that person is always feeling guilty of making that person who they're asking feel guilty. And the person who's not there on the one hand doesn't want to be asked, but on the other hand is saying, how, how come no one's asking me where, where I was? It's a tricky dance. And everyone's so concerned about the other person, how they feel, that they don't say anything. And then slowly but surely, there's a fading away. One, the group just says, oh, they've just sort of faded. And that person's saying, I guess no one really cares, so... It's, it's this mix. We, we have to have both. And when you have a community, a gospel community, there will always be a temptation to want to not meet together. As soon as you decide to form a group of any kind to follow Christ, know this, your number one temptation is going to be not meeting together regularly. It's just how it works. Satan is really, really, really crafty. As the Genesis writer says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, as Moses says. So it's, it's so tricky, but it works. He knows the time-tested tools to get people divided against God and against each other. First is make sure they don't get together as much as possible. And so a lot of important excuses come up. On the day of meeting, I feel a little off. I'm tired. I've been busy all week. I really want, my, my favorite show is just debuting. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons. And we miss that opportunity. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 to 25, and let us consider how to stir up one another 
to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. How do you get into the habit of neglecting to meet together? How does that habit happen? Because in Acts chapter 2, we're seeing 3,000 people turn to Christ, but eventually the church in Hebrews is writing to a church where they're struggling to persist in their faith. They've gotten into the habit of not meeting together. So somewhere along the way, there was a real challenge. Well, what does it take? It takes busyness. It takes fear for the Hebrews church. The right, that church, they were being persecuted. So they were afraid to gather. There was doubt probably creeping in. Definitely. Does this make a difference? What difference does this make? There was conflicts amongst each other. And habits, as we all know, they do not form in a moment. One smoke of a cigarette does not get you addicted to cigarettes. It takes time. Brushing your teeth. You know, if you have little children, you know, like, it's hard to get them to actually regularly brush their teeth. If, if you just let them not do it, they won't. So you have to force that habit on them so that eventually they do it, even though, who really, I mean, maybe someone here enjoys brushing their teeth. I don't. But I do it because it's a habit. It's, it's done. You have to develop this habit. And the way you develop it, according to this passage, is encourage one another. We have to get into the habit of actually encouraging one another. Don't wait for times. And here is the problem. We wait for the times when it's difficult to encourage one another. Then it becomes no longer just encouragement. Maybe it's exhortation. And then from exhortation, it's maybe rebuke. But we should be in the habit of encouraging one another, not just during times of struggle, but during times when, when things are well. If you're in a discipleship group, send an email to your DG leader and say, thank you for leading us. You, you're serving us so well. Maybe a, a discipleship group, uh, group leader sending it to all their members saying, these are the things that I see God doing in your life right now. Um, the worship band, what a, what a blessing they were today in leading us in worship. I don't know how many of us ever send them an email saying, you blessed me today. You know, you're singing, you're drumming. You're <laughs> I like someone who's setting up the signs, going up to them and saying, you know, I'm looking at you setting up that sign. Thank you for doing that. A lot of, a lot of your kids are being taught by the men and women in this room who are giving of themselves sacrificing. Thank you when you pick up the, the kids today to bless them and say, I just want you to know that your investment in my child's spiritual growth is so significant for me. Thank you so much. The more we are in this habit of doing that, well, guess what happens? You want to be a part of that community. You want to meet together. But meeting together it's not about rebuking each other and correcting one another all the time. That's reactive. Proactive is encouraging one another. And you know how it works with your own child. Every time you talk to him, if all you do is correct him or her when things are wrong, eventually that child starts having glazed eyes as you're talking to them. Who amongst us likes only receiving correction? That's miserable. Instead, Hopefully, for every correction you're giving, you're giving 10 to 
20 to 50 encouragements throughout the day, here are the things that, wow, the fact that you just picked up that piece of paper and threw it in the garbage, that's so special to me. Thank you for doing that. You know what's going to happen when you do that? You'll see more pieces of paper in the garbage. Not because you told them to do it, but because you encouraged them when they did it. We are so prone to look for all the things that are wrong. I am just as guilty. I am, I told you I'm the president of the impatient club. I'm also the president of the looking for things wrong club. So these are words for me as well as they are for you. Second is read. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. I can't tell you what God has been doing in my own soul regarding this area. He has been showing me the centrality of his word. I have preached and talked about this so much. But truly, 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 God's word is sweeter than honey. It has helped me to grow. It has shown me how to live. But it is not, that's not its greatest purpose. It's not a how-to book. It can do that. It does do that, but that's not why we read it. I do not read this because I'm trying to figure out how to practically live my life. And that is the saddest part of what it means to be a Christian in the Bible. You open your Bible and you think, God, help me in this situation. Show me about this. The Bible is not a DIY video or book. It really isn't. It is God's word that primarily tells us about himself. And until we come to actually enjoy finding out more about him, you cannot know how to live your life in him. Because that's our nature is to be self-centered. It's, I am worried today, I need an answer for that. And when we go into God's word like that, we will find wrong answers. But when we are most concerned about who God is, his renown, his character, his glory, his power, his reputation, his name, when that happens, when we are reading primarily because we want to know more about this great God and all he is and all that he has done, not for me, but just done, then I will have a right view of how to live my life for me. But make my purposes, my goals, my desires, the greatest desire for reading scripture. And all I will do is use it. I will, I will be a user of God. And I will not have any idea what God truly thinks. I won't find joy. It will be drudgery reading this. It is dry. No wonder why the Bible is so dry for so many of us is that we're looking for answers. And then we look, read certain parts about Leviticus and you think, man, this is so crazy. I don't understand all this like offering stuff and burnt stuff and all these animals being sacrificed because we're looking for answers of my life and then these animals being sacrificed, that just makes no sense. But if I understand, I'm reading this because I want to know about who God is. And then I see, oh yeah, God is a God of holiness. He's God of mercy but justice. He's a God of love, but a God of wrath. And, oh yeah, all these people, just like me, they really just 
do what judges says. They do what is right in their own eyes. And they're always trying to do what is right in their own eyes. And God lays out this picture, a, a, a narrative, and a narrative and a picture of all these animals that are being sacrificed. That's how horrific what your stance against me truly is. But it also points to a future picture of not an animal being sacrificed, but someone far, far more precious for you. That picture, then suddenly when you read the Bible, it jumps out at you. And it becomes sweet. And then you know how to live. We cannot show the beauty and joy of Jesus without the Bible. It's not possible. It's always short-sighted. It's always limited. The problem is that we will always go with our experience, and our experience is so weak. You cannot grow to love God, and you will not know how to power through to love difficult people and trust Him without Scripture. It's, it's the bedrock foundation of our gospel-centered, stuck-together community. Without the Bible, everything is left to what do we feel. It's not about truth anymore. It's whatever I feel is what is true. Oh, what a dangerous place that is. We are right on the edge of falling off the cliff of our eternal soul. God's Word is the only one that has stood the test of time. It has never wasted time to read God's Word and to reflect and to meditate and to study and to share God's Word together. Isaiah 48 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord's God, the word of the Lord our God will stand forever. And that is so true. I love what Martin Luther, Luther write in his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. I've been saying this stanza to myself over and over again within the past few months. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gift are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. God's truth abideth still. And here was Martin Luther standing, knowing that he could be executed for going before a church counsel to say that it is Christ and Christ alone through his word, the gospel of Christ, that is all we need to place our hope in. And where he says, here I stand, here I stand, because God's word abideth still. This is why when we gather in our gospel community, we must have God's word at the center of it. Whether we read it together and reflect on it, I'm not talking about an in-depth exegetical theological study it's simply as simple as let's read the bible together let's think about two questions what does it say about jesus and what does it say about how you need to respond in light of what it says about jesus and that's it but the richness of that and praying through that is transformational maybe not in the moment but over time you will see it it will change your life third is eat together. And they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Yes, that was regarding communion, but for the early church, that actually referred to actually eating together. 
when Sue and I were dating, um, we were both in seminary. We were at Gordon-Conwell together. She was living in an apartment with two roommates, and I was in main dorm, which is a single guy's dorm. And she had told me that she was going to cook a meal for me on Super Bowl Sunday. And uh, I think it was the first meal she had ever cooked for me. So, you know, I, I'm a new boyfriend. I'm excited. My girlfriend is going to cook me a meal. And I get to watch the biggest game of the year. Dallas was playing somebody. can remember the Super Bowl. But what a day. So I walk in. Huge spread. So excited. It was delicious. So the food was great. Who was a special person? The game starts. Turn the TV on. I stare at it. The kickoff is underway. She turns to me and says, wait, aren't we going to talk to each other? So I'm thinking, uh-oh. I w- the game turned off. And I talked for a couple of hours. <laughs> The story, that story is not about the Super Bowl or my girlfriend. It's about the food, a home-cooked meal, enjoying good food. You know, there is something about food that brings people together. It makes conversation richer, relaxed. It makes one feel cared for and loved. I mean, it's such a special thing. Here's the thing. I have been to some of the... Really, I literally know that this is true. I've probably been to, more than any of you, some of the poorest homes that you could ever be. I've been to Las Purgas, Mexico. Las Purgas in Spanish means the fleas. And actually, Justin is there as well. And uh, it was, I had something called chicharrones, but it was really rough. And... uh but that family, they made that with for us. They had nothing, and yet they gave us their best. And it was delicious. Regardless of what it tasted like, it was delicious. I've been to Meshaneko, Malawi, and had been offered mice as a meal. I've been to Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, and been offered horse milk with blood in it. All of those meals were delicious. Not in the way that you think of it, but in the way it is in Acts chapter 2. They were delicious meals. Why? These families that had nothing but giving me horse milk and blood, pig rinds with fur of the pig on it that I had to eat, and a mouse. And all of those meals was their best. And when I ate those things... No matter how difficult it was, there's joy. Because the heart is there. See, food is always the heart. We all know this. We see it from your moms who work so hard and they're always bringing out food. So food is something that we all enjoy. And so I do think there's a blessing to food. It doesn't have to be a great meal, but it's always your heart. I actually think there's a reason why this is included. And Jesus friend of sinners, is always at a meal, eating with sinners. Always. I wonder what those conversations were like. Probably not the best language. I'm sure there was a lot of drinking. And Jesus sitting there. Can you imagine Jesus at that type of meal with sinners? Prostitutes, tax collectors, everyone who the rest of the 
really good moral people are thinking, how could you be eating with them? Do you know the language they speak? Do you know that they get drunk every once in a while? Gospel community is all about dining with Jesus. And that's what we're always doing. We're eating together. I love how Tim Chester in his book, Meals with Jesus, writes this. We eat together in the presence of God. God created the world so that we might eat with him. The food we consume, the table around which we sit, and the companions gathered with us have as their end our communion with one another and with God. The Israelites were redeemed to eat with God on the mountain and were redeemed to the great messianic banquet that we anticipate when we eat together as a Christian community. We proclaim Christ in mission so that others might hear the invitation to join the feast. Ah, that's what we reflect. The future joining of the feast when we eat together. Pray, devoted themselves to the prayers. When the church gathered together to pray together, what were they doing? Paul writes in Romans 12:15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Galatians 6:2, bear one another's burdens. And you can't do this without knowing each other's burdens. So in meeting together, we pray together because we're bearing burdens and we're doing it together. And the more we come together and pray together, we grow in fellowship. We enjoy each other. We point each other to Christ. As Axis mentors, um, Sung has led us in this, but we've been praying for the past 30 days for all the parents of Axis every day. We've been listing out all the, the, the youth by name. We want you to know we're praying for your kids. I am, I'm just richly blessed as I've been praying over different students in this church. And what we've been praying for is, Lord, open their eyes, help them to see, and help these parents be equipped to turn to Christ and to lead their, their children to love Jesus above all else. Talk about a community coming together and praying. We're doing this over WhatsApp, and I still feel the community, the stuck togetherness. We, that's leading us to be more excited for October 13th when Access begins for the first time. As we've been praying for this for the past 30 days. And so we're excited to see those students who are there, who are gathering. That's how we grow together. So it's easy to feel empty and unloved without community. And praying together is how we are stuck together. Next is we share, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Needs were shared. All things, everything was in common. Physical needs, spiritual needs. They suffered together. In this church, people lost jobs because of their faith in Christ. And the whole church will come together and say, whatever you need, we're there with you. Maybe a husband would die and there'd be a widow. And the whole church comes together. We actually see this happening in Africa. Widows serving other children who have no parents, who are poor in themselves and they care for those who are really poor. That's what it means to be a, a stuck-together, gospel-centered community is that because we've been cut together and we don't deserve anything, even our resources we want to use it to the Lord for his purposes and his glory. So we share our burdens together. And then lastly, we go. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. If you agree with everything that I have just shared, 
then a stuck-together community, a gospel-centered, stuck-together community cannot be stagnant. Water is life-giving in and of itself. But water stuck in a little, small little pool without an outlet will eventually become stagnant. You drink out of that and you can die from it. Well, it's no different. We are cut together, saved by Jesus. That's the good news. But it can't just stay in a little pool and stuck. It has to outflow or else it will die. Think about this for a moment. Have you ever been told good news? Do you, when you hear that good news, do you think, I'm never going to tell anyone, ever? That's exactly not how it works. As soon as you hear good news, you can't wait to tell people. It's, uh, it's just, it's the nature of good news. Good news cannot be held in. So let me ask you this. If you have good news and you don't want to tell people at all, ever, do you think it's really good news for you? And that's the biggest question we have to ask ourselves. If the gospel is good news and you never want to tell anyone, then you have to first ask, is it actually really good news for me? That's a hard question to ask, but it's one that it just seems to make logical sense that if it's good, you'll want to tell people. A stuck-together gospel community wants to tell others the good news. They want to expand. They want to multiply. They don't want to stay together. Oh, I really love hanging out with this people, these people for 10 years. And a group of people that hangs out together for 10 years and never tells anyone else, never expands, never multiplies, never thinks, how about you lead them to the good news and you lead them to the good news. You go out to that community and lead them to the good news. And if your whole purpose is, we have such a great thing going, we never want to be apart from one another again. We don't want to tell anyone. We don't want to expand. We don't want to do anything. Oh, be careful. That's what's called stagnancy. Stagnant water. And stagnant water is death. So a stuck-together community, gospel community, goes together. Goes out. Daily, those who are being saved. I'm going to close with two things. First is a quote by Tim Keller, because I really like, like what he says. And then lastly, some practical conclusions. First, the best way by far ever to build community is through small groups. It's through home groups. It's through people you are committed to do the things the scripture teaches you to do together. Years ago when John Wesley and George Whitfield had this great revival and millions of people were coming to Christ, they divided these people into what they called classes and bands. It was their small groups of 10 people or so. They said, get together each week, just tell what's in your heart and help one another and pray for one another. That sounds really simple. They were in the Episcopal Church at the time, and a lot of people objected very much to these little classes, and they said, religion is a private matter. I want to come and hear the word preached. I want to come and worship in the sanctuary, but I do not have to sit around and talk and spill out my feelings and all this sort of thing. Religion is a private matter. John Wesley simply said this in his response. He calmly said, the Bible says, confess your sins to one another. James 5.16, exhort one another daily. So we're hardened, not hardened by sin. Hebrews 3.13, teach and admonish one another in wisdom. Colossians 3.16, stir one another up to love and good works. Hebrews 10.24, bear one another's burdens. Galatians 6.2, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Romans 12.15. Now, if you do not meet to do these things, when will they get done? 
Oh, it's as practical as you can get. If you don't actually meet regularly to do this, then how are we going to actually obey Jesus' commands? So we have to do this. Not because it's a cool program, but it's because we want to obey Jesus. We really want to obey Him. And that's why in September 2020, we're going to be forming new gospel communities. They're going to be formed on the basis of this home group, community group structure that we used to have a long time ago. We moved away from it because, oh, it's a long story, but, um, you know, sometimes the best ideas are not always best ideas. And we moved away from it because we thought, okay, this is a, a better way. And But we realized, looking back, reflecting, after having done gospel communities the way that we've done for a number of period of time, that it's not actually producing what we long for. And so we're going to go back to what Tim Keller mentions. Not because he mentions it, but because we see it here in Acts. We actually see it in the Bible. And so whatever we call it, I think we're going to actually just call it gospel communities. Not could be home groups, could be community groups, but I like the name gospel communities because that's what we want it to be, a gospel community. It'll be smaller groups, but not as small as a discipleship group. It'll be multi-family, multi-gendered. Be about 12 to maybe 12 to 20 people somewhere along those lines. And these gatherings will have these outflow elements. Meet, read, eat, pray, share, go. But they are going to be based as an outflow of being cut together. We're trained, we're transformed by Christ. So we're going to be implementing these in September 2020, but we're going to try to do some pilot programs of this earlier on. So, Get ready for that. We wanted you to know in way in advance so that you can get an idea of, oh, this is not something new. Where is this coming from? But rather, it's something that we've been talking about over time. Um, please pray with us. Pray for our current gospel community leaders. We have a meeting coming up. We're going to just be discussing some of this and other things. But I am excited so much to see what the Lord does through our church for his glory, for his purposes. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you. We thank you for the community that is only possible through your son, Jesus. From the beginning of time, you, the preexistent Father, Son, Spirit, in perfect union and community, you gave your son as a foreordained plan to save us for yourself. And our gathering whether it's on Sunday, whether it's in discipleship group, whether it's in gospel communities, all of that, we wanted to reflect that union because it costs such a high cost for you to bring us into your presence. So we come to this table to remember that truth. We remember that you are faithful and good to us, that you forgive us our sins and you cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We never want to forget that reality. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.